If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 123124. Excludes tax must opt into rewards. Welcome to the History Extra Podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the construction of Stonehenge to the formulation of the Big Bang Theory, humanity has been spellbound by celestial objects for thousands of years. And that fascination has triggered religious controversies, epic feats of navigation, and astonishing scientific advances. For today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Spencer Mizzen sat down with James Hannum, author of The Globe, How the Earth Became Round, to answer your questions on the history of astronomy. Thank you very much for joining us today. So we're going to talk everything you wanted to know about the history of astronomy. So, James, I wonder if you could start by just giving us a very quick definition of astronomy. What, in a nutshell, is it? Well, every time you look up at the sky and you see the sun or at night the planets or the stars, then you're doing doing a little bit of astronomy. The word means knowledge of the stars, literally in Greek. And as far as the Greeks were concerned, pretty much everything in the sky was a star. They considered that the planets were stars and the stars themselves, any other objects that they could see. So as far as they were concerned, knowledge of the stars meant knowledge of everything that was going on up in the sky. She thought takes us quite nicely to a question we've had submitted on social media from somebody called Jordan Soleil. And he asks, 
How did astronomy and astrology intersect? And how and when did they diverge as separate studies? Well, for a very, very long time, astrology and astronomy were really very closely related indeed. Some of the earliest records that we have by astronomers are really to do with astrology. Looking back to ancient Sumer and ancient Babylon, some of the very earliest written records in existence, they suggest that people at that time, they were looking at the stars, they were trying to use the stars to understand what was going to happen on Earth. For them, astrology didn't mean star signs, didn't mean something that applied to ordinary people. Astrology was messages that the gods were sending to the king. Obviously, the gods weren't going to communicate with any old person through the sky, only somebody really important. And so the kings had professional teams of astrologers who were also knowledgeable astronomers who were able to interpret those messages and pass them on to the king so that he knew if he was doing something wrong or doing something right, when they should go to war or not go to war, or whether some kind of religious ritual was required to assuage the gods if the gods were annoyed about something. And it wasn't really until the early centuries BC that astrology became what you might call democratised. And by then there were quite a few astrologers, but the whole of Babylonia had been taken over by these massive empires, the Persian Empire and, and the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. And these emperors, they were possibly a little less interested in what the Babylonian gods had to say to them. And that might be the reason that astrologers found that they needed a new market. So they started to sell their services to anyone who could afford the fee and have horoscopes and such like, which were used the stars to help ordinary people make decisions, whether they should go on that difficult and dangerous journey or not, or whether they should get married, decisions like that. And that, that travelled to Greece fairly shortly afterwards, and the Greeks really, really took to it. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the drive for increasingly accurate astronomy was astrologers who needed to know not just where the stars and planets were on a particular day that they could look up at, but they also needed to know where they'd been in the past when somebody had been born and where they were going to be in the future. So astronomers who were able to make predictions were really, really important. So let's go back to the beginning then. So I've had a question in from somebody called Susie1340, and she asks... Who were the earliest peoples that were able to understand and make use of astronomy? So I guess humans have been studying the skies for as long as humans have existed. But when do we have the first solid documentary evidence that people were practising astronomy? Well, I would say we have evidence of people practising astronomy from thousands of years before when we have any kind of documentary evidence Stonehenge is a, is a great example of that. It's aligned to the solstices. That's the, the longest and the shortest days of the year. And so one of its purposes, we can be reasonably confident, was to help people determine what the calendar was. And it's a little bit more difficult than you might think. If you don't know how long 
the year actually is, you're looking for regularities in the heavens, which will tell you that the cycle has started again. And the stones are aligned at Stonehenge, such that on the summer solstice, that's the longest day of the year, the sun rises in a particular alignment. And that would have been extremely useful information for people who needed to know when they were going to plant their crops or harvest their crops. So I think the earliest examples we have of astronomy are these monuments, of which Stonehenge is probably the most famous, being used by people to determine what the calendar was and what time of year it was. The earliest written evidence that we have comes from the civilization of Sumer in today's southern Iraq. I was talking about them a little bit earlier, going right back to the third millennium BC. And we have clay tablets from the third millennium BC, which show, for instance, that the Sumerians had been sufficiently observant of the stars that that they knew that the, the evening star and the morning star were the same object, even though they were, one was appearing in the morning, one was appearing in the evening. And we call that object Venus. It's a planet that's the brightest star-like object in the sky. So they were really looking at the stars very closely. And a lot of that wasn't just because they were concerned about the calendar. They were, as we've just been talking about, very keen astrologers as well. And Alex Sasha Celeste asks, what optical devices would these ancient cultures have been utilising? The most important ancient device was a thing called a gnomon. And it really was the simplest thing you can imagine. It was a stick. And you used that stick in order to measure the length of the shadows from the sun. And also you could get a shadow from the moon under good conditions as well. And that enabled you to track the elevation of the sun through the years. And that was, again, very helpful for the calendar. But you could do a lot more than that with it. There was a Greek astronomer called Aristothenes of Alexandria, and he used a gnomon to determine the circumference of the Earth. What he did was he measured the angle of the sun at two or three points, several hundred miles apart in Egypt, And he used the differences in those angles to determine, uh, assuming that the sun was, well, effectively an infinite distance away, how large the Earth was, because he knew the distance between the gnomons that he was using for his measurements, or at least he had somebody to use for his measurements, and the difference in the sun's angle at each one. And he came up with really quite an accurate estimate of the circumference of the Earth, depending on exactly what units of measurement he was using, perhaps 10% different from what we consider it today. So even though no one was just a stick, you could do some pretty impressive things with it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Yeah, that's still pretty good going, isn't it? That's, still, that's, that's, that's pretty accurate. Okay, so you just mentioned the ancient Greeks there. They're obviously synonymous with advances in astronomy. I mean, what leaps forward were made in this period? And which Greek astronomers made the greatest contributions? The Greeks learnt a lot of their earliest astronomy from the Babylonians, we think, because the Babylonians had had a much bigger start than the Greeks had. So Greek astronomy really only gets going around about 400 BC, so a couple of thousand years after the Babylonians had started. But they did, as you say, make some really quite impressive advances in astronomy. And I think for me, the most impressive was that they realised that the Earth is a sphere. And that is much more counterintuitive than perhaps we think of it being today, because, you know, you think flat earthers are all a bit foolish and stupid. But actually, before the ancient Greeks, everyone had assumed that the earth was flat. And long after the ancient Greeks, most people assumed the earth was flat for for centuries and centuries, because it's really just common sense. So this counterintuitive idea that the earth was actually shaped like a ball was first well demonstrated by a philosopher in the mid-4th century called Aristotle in his seminal book On the Heavens. And although Aristotle himself wasn't much of an astronomer, he had people he knew who were astronomers in Athens with him, particularly somebody called Eudoxus, who travelled far and wide and was able to show that what you can see of the stars depends on where you are on the surface of the earth. And that was very strong evidence that the Earth is curved. A century or so after that, another Greek astronomer, a chap called Hipparchus, he started building some quite complicated mathematical models of the movements of the planets. And he also noticed that the Earth is wobbling on its axis, that the pole star, for instance, is not, in fact, although it is today, always due north, because the axis is turning And that meant that the star or the group of stars which was most close to being due north was changing year by year over a cycle of, I think, about 26,000 years altogether. And one of the really odd things about that is that it's affected astrology, as we understand it today, quite profoundly, because the signs of the zodiac, they were set 2,000 years ago by the Babylonians, adopted by the Greeks. But since then, the Earth's axis has wobbled by a fair amount. And that means that the position of the sun that determines your sun sign relative to the background of the stars has changed, or the time of year has changed. And it's changed by a few weeks, actually. And that means it's if you think your sun sign is a Virgo, because that's what you've always been told, it's actually much more likely you're a Leo. <laughs> and that the sun was in the sign of Leo when you were born. I'll leave it up to you to decide what that says about the accuracy of astrology. Uh, I suppose there's one more Greek astronomer who I have to mention, and that's Ptolemy of Alexandria. And he lived in the 2nd century AD, and he worked in lots of different subjects in optics. Uh, he was interested in mirrors. 
and he was also quite a renowned astrologer. But it's astronomy that he's best known for, and he produced a very complicated but very accurate model of the heavens that allowed him and his readers to predict the movements of the planets to really quite a high degree of accuracy. And although his ideas were adapted and improved, especially by Muslim astronomers in the following centuries, his system remained the the system that basically everybody used for about 1,500 years. And that's even though he believed that the Earth was stationary. It's a sphere, but it's stationary at the centre of the universe, even though he had that what we now know today to be incorrect model of the heavens, he was still able to use mathematics to come up with this really, really sophisticated model. Okay, I have a question here from Authentically Livy, and that is, when did the planets get their names and why are they named after Roman gods? Well, we have to go back to Babylonians yet again, which is what happens quite a lot in the history of astronomy. You'll recall... We were talking about how the Sumerians knew that the evening star, the planet Venus, was the same as the morning star, and they associated that object with their goddess Inanna. And Inanna's was known to the Babylonians as Ishtar, so that was the star of Ishtar. And Venus is the closest sort of Roman equivalent to those goddesses. So that's what the Romans ended up calling that planet. And we kind of inherited that And the Babylonians associated the planet Jupiter with their own king of the gods, Marduk. And Jupiter is obviously the Roman king of the gods. We've inherited those Roman names, largely because Latin, even though it died out as the language that ordinary people were speaking many, many centuries ago, remained the language of learning, sort of the lingua franca of the learned people of Western Europe, right the way up until around about 1700, perhaps even even later than that. So we, as astronomy is obviously a scientific subject, we adopted the vocabulary of Latin and the Latin names of the planets. And we've kept that tradition going, obviously. Uranus and Neptune and Pluto, they, they weren't known to the Romans, but we decided that we were going to give them Roman god names as well. Neptune and Pluto must have been particularly grieved not to have planets named after them because they were two of the chief gods of the of the Romans, so that's been put right. Sure. Now, you mentioned Muslim scholars. I mean, what contribution did they make to our knowledge of the stars and, and the practice of astronomy? Well, astronomy was an important subject in the Islamic Caliphate and thereafter, partly actually because they were still also very interested in astrology, but also because they used a different calendar to the Romans. The traditional Muslim calendar is is a lunar calendar. And and that's quite complicated to try to reconcile with the solar calendar of the year, because although we have 12 months in our calendar, those months don't actually correspond to the movements of the moon. Obviously, the word month comes from the word for moon. And it's actually impossible to fit a whole number of lunar months into any number of years. You can approximate it, but it's difficult to do. And that means that you need a lot of careful work by astronomers if you are using a lunar calendar in association with a solar calendar. And 
the Islamic world drew astronomical knowledge, not just from the ancient Greeks, but also from India as well. In fact, they probably took their earliest astronomical scholarship from the Indians, who had already were aware at that point that the Earth was a sphere, uh, something they had probably learned from the Greeks a few centuries before. And the first Arabic book of astronomy was a translation of an Indian astronomical textbook. And then Muslim scholars started making improvements to to Ptolemy, as as I mentioned earlier. And there's a couple who I think are really worth mentioning. There's Nat al-Din al-Tisi, who was a 13th century Persian astronomer. He had the misfortune of being caught up in the Mongol invasions, but he convinced the Mongols of his usefulness as an astronomer, and they set him up in his own observatory. And he developed adaptations of Ptolemy's geometry, improvements that sort of made it a bit more logical and sensible. And those those improvements actually turn up in the work of Copernicus a couple of centuries later. We don't know exactly the route by which Copernicus would have heard about them, but there was plenty of intercommunication as far as scholarship was concerned between the the Christian and the the Muslim world at the time. And a century after Al-Tusi ibn al-Shatir, who was the timekeeper of the great Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, absolutely incredible building. I was lucky enough to visit it before the Civil War, which has meant that no one's really been able to be a tourist in Syria for some time. And his job was to make sure that the times of prayer in the capital were being called out at the correct times. That was really very, very important job, especially if you were in such a significant mosque as he was. So he was a a skilled astronomer himself, and he developed a model of the orbit of the moon, again, improving on Ptolemy. And again, we find that used in the the work of Copernicus. I, I I would say that although Muslim astronomers, some of them did consider whether or not the Earth might rotate on its axis, we don't know of any who thought that the Earth goes around the sun. That had to wait for a, a few more centuries. OK, what about the Chinese contribution? With there respect to Chinese astronomers that we should know about? I have to admit, I'm absolutely fascinated by Chinese astronomy because it's based on completely different axioms to the astronomy of the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Muslim world. And it is also very ancient The earliest records that we have show that the Chinese thought that the heavens were shaped as a canopy, almost like a turning umbrella, and they were over a flat, square earth. So the system of calculation that the Chinese used was very different from what was used in the other civilizations that we've been talking about. But it was no less impressive for that, that the calendar was of absolutely critical importance to the Chinese. They believed that in order to maintain cosmic harmony, the emperor had to ensure that all the right rituals were being performed at exactly the right time. They had to be able to interpret the messages that heaven was trying to send to the emperor, messages that the emperor disregarded, you know, anything could go wrong. And that meant that the Chinese were real sticklers for accuracy when it came to astronomy. Not least, in fact, because if you had the job of official astronomer and you made a mess of it, 
you could find yourself on trial for your life. It was that important. So it was in your interest to, <laughs> to do your job well. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to now turn to a question from Rosa Legano bell And that is, to what extent was the progress of astronomy hindered by the Catholic Church? I think that historians now would say that the Catholic Church was both a help and a hindrance to astronomy. Through much of the Middle Ages, the Church encouraged astronomy. It was as interested in the calendar as anybody else. And astronomy was one of the subjects that was compulsory at the medieval universities, which began to be founded in the 11th century. And if you wanted to go on and do a theology degree, for instance, at a a university like Oxford or Paris, you first had to be an undergraduate and you had to master the basics of astronomy as they'd been inherited from the Greeks. And if you're an advanced student, you had to read and understand Ptolemy, although not many people manage that because it's, it's difficult stuff. And some of what we hear about the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages is sort of a 19th century myth. For instance, in Europe, we inherited the Greek model of the universe. So during the Middle Ages, no educated person thought that the earth was flat. They had the works of Aristotle. They knew the evidence for the earth being a sphere, and that was completely accepted. And actually in the 16th century, Pope Gregory XIII put together a fairly crack team of astronomers in order to help reform the calendar, because they'd been using the same calendar since the Roman era, and it had got out of kilter with the movements of the sun by all 10 days. And, you know, the Chinese just never could have stood for that. They had to keep changing their calendar. If it was even out by one day, that could be a disaster for them. Anyway, Christians didn't seem to be so bothered, but 10 days was hard to ignore. So he used the best astronomers that he had, including, in fact, the work of Copernicus, in order to reform the calendar, and they ended up losing 10 days in 1582, in October 1582. And they also instituted the calendar that we use today, where we don't just have leap years, we have exceptions to leap years. I think one of the most recent of, from memory was the year 2000, which may have been a leap year, but shouldn't have been a leap year, but for the, the Gorian calendar, but it gets complicated. <laughs> so... It wasn't really until the 17th century that we start to see the Catholic Church beginning to make mistakes when it came to astronomy. And obviously the biggest mistake it made was in 1616 when it banned heliocentrism, the idea that the Earth goes around the Sun, which Copernicus had taught in his book The Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres, which came out in 1543. Can you elaborate on that a bit then? Because that's kind of really popular among internet search queries and that is you know when did people start believing that the earth traveled around the sun rather than the other way round? well at the time that the catholic church banned the idea in 1616 it was still a very much a minority idea there were some people who believed it and some very significant people who believed it one of those obviously was galileo and Galileo broke the ban, and he was put on trial in 1633 by the Inquisition because he'd broken the ban, and 
He'd also managed to insult the Pope in a book which he had written, or at least the Pope had been very insulted by what he had written. And back in those days, insulting the Pope was something he just didn't do. So he was placed under hat arrest for the rest of his life, and that certainly did have a chilling effect on astronomy. For example, René Descartes, the famous French philosopher, he shelved his own book on cosmology as a result of the ban of the Catholic Church. And the question of why people started to believe that the Earth actually did go around the Sun, I think the answer to that is the work of a German astronomer called Johannes Kepler. And he was a very, very precise mathematician, and he had access to the most precise astronomical observations of the time, which had been made by his own master, old master, a Danish chap called Tycho Brahe. And over many years, Kepler worked on these observations to try to figure out what it was that they were showing. And he believed that they were showing that the planets were going around the sun, but he just couldn't get it to quite work. And Kepler was an intensely religious man, and really, really religious, even by 17th century standards. And he just couldn't accept the idea that God, who'd created the universe, would have had these slight inaccuracies. It just offended him. So he desperately wanted to find a precise solution to the problem of how it was the planets were moving. And he eventually... He found it. He found that instead of moving in circles, they moved in ellipses. Then he was able to produce the precise calculations that matched the observations that he wanted to do. And then he brought out a set of astronomical tables, which were, for the first time, markedly better than Ptolemy or anything else which had gone before. And because those tables had been produced on the assumption that the planets were orbiting the sun in ellipses, that's a beautifully simple model, it was really the strongest empirical evidence that people had that actually that was, in reality, the way things were. How controversial was that at the time? What did the church think of his theory when he put it forward? I think it didn't take all that long for the Catholic Church, or at least the intellectuals in the Catholic Church, to realise that they'd screwed this up and... Catholic astronomers had to toe the line, but there was a certain amount of wriggle room which they would try to take advantage of. It did, however, take really quite a long time for the church to eventually reverse its position. But of course, by that time, half of Europe was Protestant, and they didn't care what the Catholic church thought. And Kepler himself was a Protestant as well. So in countries like much of Germany and the Netherlands and England and Scotland, there wasn't really any controversy over Kepler's work. And we do see through the 17th century English writers, for instance, going from saying, well, this Copernicus chap, bit of an odd idea, to actually this does seem to be the way things work. Great. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about Galileo Galilei? Because he's obviously an enormous name in the history of astronomy. And how transformative were his studies? And can you tell us a little bit about his telescope as well? Well, he is obviously famous for a lot of things, but perhaps the most significant thing he did was to take the idea of the telescope. The telescope may have been around for some time. We're not really sure. There's hints of that in the sources. But he produced what was 
at the time, almost certainly the best telescope in the world. And he pointed it at the stars and he immediately managed to see things that no one has seen before. And the first thing, one of the first things he did was he looked at the moon and he saw that the moon was very obviously not a perfect sphere. And the theory had been, well, it's in heavens, it's got to be perfect. He noticed that it had craters and mountains and valleys in it. And consequently, it looked like a much more earthly than heavenly thing. Another thing that Galileo spotted was that there were four moons going around Jupiter, which he wisely named after his patrons, the Dukes of Tuscany. And that showed that not everything in the solar system was going around the Earth, because these moons were very obviously going around Jupiter. And Galileo brought out a book called The Starry Messenger in 1610, where he publicised his findings, and he kind of became the first popular science superstar. And later on, he noted that Saturn appeared to have ears, which uh, we now know are its rings. And perhaps most significantly of all, the planet Venus has phases like the moon does. And you could see that there was a shadow across part of Venus. And this shadow was most consistent with Venus going around the sun, not around the Earth. And that was probably what convinced him that Copernicus was right. So let's talk about another scientific superstar, and that is Isaac Newton. So how big a moment was the formulation of a theory of gravity in the history of astronomy? And should Newton be given credit for it? Well, Newton is obviously one of the the greatest scientists and intellects of all time, but even he had to draw on the work of others. And Although he wasn't, to be sure, a terribly sociable chap, he did correspond with other astronomers and philosophers and mathematicians. And obviously he, at the time, he knew that Kepler had shown that the planets were moving in ellipses. And so what he was able to do was show that his theory of gravity predicted that. And that was a very powerful demonstration of how gravity worked. And he also was able to show with the mechanical laws which he adapted and adopted from other thinkers, as well as putting onto a more rigorous framework, that gravity on Earth is the same as a gravity that's affecting the planets in the sky. In other words, the laws of physics apply equally to the heavens and to Earth, that they're universal. Why it's often called the universal law of gravity. And that was a very, very significant finding because he showed there that scientific discoveries could be assumed to be working right the way across the known universe and the same laws were going to apply everywhere. Now, I want to ask you a question about astronomy's relations to the forging of empires because I wanted to know what role it played in the establishment of trade routes because it did facilitate maritime navigation, didn't it? Mariners relied quite heavily on the movement of heavenly bodies to navigate their way across the Earth's seas. I mean, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, please. The earliest record that I know of of somebody habitually sailing across the open ocean is the traders of the Roman era who were trading with India. So they were sailing between a Red Sea and India. And they'd figured out that the winds would blow them right the way across the Indian Ocean to the 
west coast of India. And that was a really very, very significant trade route at the time. And we know that they must have been navigating by the stars. They would have been using them to determine which direction was north and making sure that they were keeping on the correct course. But, you know, at that time and for quite some time afterwards, most mariners would stick within sight of land because simply knowing which direction is north is not usually enough if you're not entirely sure where you're going. So it, I think it probably took quite some time. And the invention of the magnetic compass in China, which spread across Asia to Europe by the Middle Ages before people were habitually willing to sail well out of sight of land. But I suppose you, you mentioned empires and the European empires, they did rely on astronomy when they were trying to map their domains because, it, as everybody knows, it's extremely difficult to measure longitude. Is why John Harrison had to invent his clock so that you had an absolute time that you could compare to the local time and you'd know what your longitude was. And before that, the Spanish were very concerned to accurately map their vast domains in the Americas and the, and the Pacific. And they came up with a very clever way of doing it by using lunar eclipses. And because astronomers were able to perfectly predict when a lunar eclipse was going to happen, that was what gave them their absolute time. And they would observe the eclipse in more than one place, and they would then be able to tell the longitude of where they were. And that meant that they could accurately map their empire. It wasn't terribly helpful if you were a traveller, because lunar eclipses don't come along all that often. But it was uh, very significant for making sure that the world was being accurately mapped even before Harrison invented his clock. Sure. Now, here's another question that's popular among internet searches, and, and that is, who came up with the theory of the Big Bang and when? Well, that's very much a 20th century story. And by the early 20th century, people just realised that the universe was vastly bigger than anyone had ever imagined. And looking at galaxies, distant galaxies through telescopes, it was observed that galaxies, which appeared to be further away, their light was being shifted in the electromagnetic spectrum towards red. And that implied that those galaxies were moving away from us. The further away they were, the faster they seemed to be moving away from us. And that suggested that the universe is expanding. And at the same sort of time, Einstein developed his theory of general relativity. And that kind of suggested the same thing, although Einstein himself wasn't very convinced by the idea. So in the 1920s, a Belgian named Georges Lemaitre, he first presented a theory which drew on Einstein's work to show that the universe actually was expanding and that this explained the observations that people have been making on the apparent movement of the galaxies. And a bit later, Lemaitre said that actually, well, hang on, if you wind this back, it's going to show that the universe started at a point. And he was right about that, even though it just seemed like an incredible idea at the time that the, the entire universe had started in something microscopically tiny. But he didn't coin the words the Big Bang. That was done by somebody who didn't believe him, a chap called Fred Hoyle, who was an English astronomer. 
And he thought this idea was completely crazy, and he coined the term Big Bang to try and mock it. But it caught on, and that's why we call it the Big Bang. One of the interesting things about Hoyle and Lemaitre is that Hoyle at least implied that one of the reasons he didn't like this idea of the universe having a beginning was that it might provide circa to religious people who could say that there was a moment of creation. And Hoyle, as an atheist, didn't like the idea of that getting around. George Lemaitre was, in fact, a Catholic priest. And it's often been assumed that this was some kind of, you know, part of the inspiration for his discovery of the origin of the universe. But in fact, he was very much against using science as an argument in favour of religion. He believed in God, obviously, he was a priest, but he didn't think that scientific discoveries should be used by religious people as evidence for God or evidence for religion. He thought the two subjects should be kept separately. Today, is the Big Bang Theory universally accepted? I mean, is a consensus now that that is scientific fact? Absolutely, yes, yes. I mean, I, you can never speak for everybody, but it's definitely the standard model. And there is vast amounts of empirical evidence for it, most famous being the background microwave radiation, which appears to be the echo of the Big Bang, which we can still detect. Okay, James, finally, this isn't really a historical question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What, in your opinion, is the next big step in the arena of astronomy? I think it's probably what are called exoplanets. When I was a boy and interested in astronomy, I was always very frustrated by being told that we had no evidence for any planets around any stars apart from our own. And now we know about dozens of them. And it's quite incredible to me how that has sort of changed so dramatically in the course of my life. And now I think what we want to do is try and understand what those planets were like. We're finding out more and more about them. And obviously the most exciting thing would be with the increasingly sophisticated instruments that we have in orbit now is if we can pick up signatures for the sorts of chemicals which would be evidence of life on some of those planets. And that's already just beginning to happen. And I think an awful lot of very bright people are thinking very hard about how they can get better at that and the sorts of things that they can pick up. I'm not really talking about intelligent life or aliens. I'm a bit sceptical that we're likely to be able to pick that sort of thing up or be able to differentiate that from just life in general. But I think it would be tremendously exciting if we were able to pick up some kind of chemical signature of life somewhere else in the galaxy. That was James Hannum. The Globe, How the Earth Became Round is out now, published by Reaction Books. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 